Good morning. A couple boys were overheard speaking in the fellowship hour last week. You know if you've been here, we're going cover to cover from Genesis to Revelation. And it was overheard one saying to the other, my lands. He says we're going through the whole Bible and we're only through Genesis 3. He won't get done until we're dead. Well, we're going to pick up the pace today. Because if they think they're going to be dead by the end of the series, I may only make it to the Psalms. I had a guy over to the house this week to uh, give us a bid on some concrete work. And so he was talking about it, the price, procedure, and then the timing. When can we get this done? He said, well, it, it's, it all has to do with the weather. And then he uh, said, you know, only one person knows the weather. And he looked up. And he said, and he's not talking. <laughs> and I quickly quipped, oh, yes, he is. Because that's what we've been learning as we start our study of the Bible. That we meet a God who talks. And his word is really powerful. So when he says, let there be lights, man, were there lights. He spoke this whole universe into existence from nothing. And then we're amazed to hear him speak about creation. He talks about it's a good thing. It's good creation. Creating us in the image of God was very good. And we're amazed to see how he actually speaks with his creation. So he's got a relationship. We see him described as walking in the garden with Adam and Eve and he's talking to his people and last week we we saw the the horrific ending to the good beginning where they they sinned Adam and Eve they didn't believe that fundamentally God was a good God they didn't fundamentally believe that his word would be a good word for them they didn't fundamentally believe that it was a good rule that he was placing over them as he ruled them by his word. And so what they did is they doubted his goodness. They disobeyed his word. And they just flat out rejected his authority and rule in their life and said, you know what? We'd like to be God. We'd like to try it on our own. And Adam and Eve trying it on their own made a huge mess of everything because everything changed from that point on, everything. The relationship with God changed. Sin now separated them from a holy God. Their relationship with each other changed. There was conflict now in human relationships. Everything changed in the world. This perfect, ordered world was now under a curse. And yet what we begin to see in the beginnings of this story is that though everything has changed, God has not. And what we see and started to see last week is the amazing picture of our loving God who is always holy, who is always just, who is always full of mercy and compassion and gracious. And so where we are in the story this morning as we move ahead to the life of Abraham is we come to this question that's really an important question for us. 
because the stories move from the good beginning to the not-so-good middle part. Actually, very bad middle part. And it happens to be the point in biblical history that you and I live. We're like our parents, and Adam and Eve. We're sinners. And the big question is, how does a person who is a sinner be made right with a holy God? How can we get back to the garden? You know, God put the cherubim there with the flaming sword there. There was no way back in. There was no way back in on their own. So how does a person get right with God? And the story of Abraham answers the question. So take your Bible. Genesis, the 12th chapter, is where we begin. If you have your uh, Bible from the rack in front of you, you find it on page 10. And just so I don't forget, as we read about this man in verse 1, Abram, it's just good for you to know Abram is the same man who's called Abraham. Abraham means exalted father. Abraham, father of multitudes. And it has everything to do with God's promise to this man. And as we read in Genesis 12, 1, here's how the account goes. The Lord had said to Abraham, Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. Well, back in verse 31, we understand where he's been. He's the son of Terah, who has lived in a place uh, named Ur. In fact, maybe we got a map up here of, of that portion of the world. Here's Ur right here. See it? Ur of the Chaldeans. That's where he grew up. His father, Terah, was there living, him. That's, living there with him. He was raised there. And then God said to him, I want you to go to the land that I'm going to show you. And so they start traveling, Terah and his son Abraham and their family, and they make it all the way up to here, Haran. And they stayed there for a while. And it wasn't until Terah, Abraham's father, died that he then goes from Haran down here into the promised land into modern-day Israel. So when we get to this guy, Abram, one of the things we just got to notice, who is God choosing to accomplish his saving purposes, and what kind of a person is he inviting into a relationship? And we ought to be surprised because Joshua 24 verse 2 tells us that Abraham was an idolater from Ur. He was an idol worshiper. He's not like Noah, this righteous and blameless man. He's not like Enoch who walked with God and who was kind of beamed out of there because God said, you're too good for this world. He's a pagan. He's an idol worshiper. And we just note that. That is a surprising choice. God, I wouldn't have picked that kind of person. Now, not only is it a surprising choice, it's his pattern. So when you start studying who we call the patriarchs, the fathers here, Abraham, his son Isaac, his grandson Jacob, and Jacob's 12 sons. When you get into the history of these guys from Genesis 12 to 50, you realize this is a pretty motley crew. I mean, Isaac wants to pawn off his wife just like his dad did to save his own neck, the king Abimelech. Jacob is true to his name. He's a scoundrel. He's a schemer. He's a deceiver. He, he gets the birthright, steals it from his brother, 
And he deceives his dad and giving him the blessing, getting his dad Isaac thinking that he really was Esau. And Judah, Judah has sex with his daughter-in-law thinking that she's a prostitute. This is not this great hall of fame where you're going, wow, these are all these holy, perfect people that God chose. Now, this was his pattern. And let me say, that's good news for me. That's good news for us, that God in his grace chooses people, not on the condition of what we bring to the table, but on the condition of his character. And his character is full of grace, full of grace. So it's a surprising choice, but it's a very clear command, isn't it? The command is, hey, get up, go, leave. And he's to leave what? Country, people, and home. That was a hard commandment. I know a little bit about that hard commandment because my parents immigrated from Switzerland in 1952. There's a picture of them, young married in love, on the uh, banks of the Seine River in Paris. And when they met and fell in love, my dad made it clear, I've got a dream to go to America. So if you're hooking up with me, just understand, this wagon is heading, we're heading west. We're going to America. And she's thinking, yeah, 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 right. He's just talking. He's a dreamer. We're never going to go. I'll never have to leave my eight brothers and sisters and my dad. Well, lo and behold... May of 1952, my mother gave birth to my oldest sister, Monique. And before she and my sister got out of the hospital, my dad boarded a boat. You'll see him in this next picture. And he's happy as a clam here, heading to actually Toronto because they couldn't get sponsorship in the States. He's happy. And within six weeks, my mother travels over to Toronto and she's not very happy. I mean, she's left. It wasn't her dream. And there are a lot of tears. She missed her home. She didn't know anybody. She didn't know a lick of English. And here she is, a stranger in a foreign land. That was a hard thing. And she talked to us about that. Didn't get home to her relatives for eight years. Lots of tears. But, man, my parents were 27, 24. Change at that age is usually pretty easy. Now, think about Abraham. He's 75. Whoa, dog, that is not an easy call. It was a hard call, even though it was a clear command. But this is how God does it, and it's so great that you get used to this pattern and used to it in your parenting. When God gives a command, he also gives a reason why. And it's seen in verses 2 and 3. And here we have the gracious promise that comes alongside of that clear command that gives great motivation to Abram to go. And here's the promise. Verse 2. God says, Abram, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And I will bless you. And I will make your name great. And you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Well, there it is. The blessing that's going to go to you and to all the peoples, all the families of the earth. That's the promise I'm making. I'm going to make you a father of a great nation. He says, well, God, there's only one problem. I'm 75. 
My wife is 65. And if you haven't noticed, uh, we don't have any kids. We've been trying for a long time, and we're kind of past the childbearing ages. And uh, that's a problem. I hear what you're saying, but there's a pretty huge obstacle here of our age and infertility. And uh, let me bring up another thing. You, you said you're going to take me to this land, and he goes on to tell him it's a land I'm going to show you. And, and, and Abram's saying, could you just give me a map so I can tell my people where we're going? Because we've already done this Ur to Haran thing, and it was kind of hard. And if I tell them we're on the road again, and they say, well, where are we going, Father? And I say, well, not really sure. It could be mutiny on the bounty here, God. So could you help me out with the map? Some big obstacles. <laughs> Maybe that's where you are today. I mean, some big ones. And you, you start chasing the story of Abraham out, and there's one obstacle after another. And maybe that's what you're right up against this morning. You, you, you've got the promises of God, and you've got the realities of life today, and you go, this is hard. There is a huge hurdle that I have to overcome because this obstacle right now is talking to me. And the things it's saying makes me want to doubt your goodness. It makes me want to reject your rule and made me think that these aren't promises that are ever going to happen. And you see this repeated again and again. And let us learn the pattern that we need to do that Abraham kept doing. And he didn't do it consistent. He failed as often as he succeeded. Maybe he failed more often than he succeeded. But when he succeeded, it was always his pattern of going back and believing what he knew about God and his word. Real obstacles. But verse 4 gives us the picture then of real faith. And, and I guess today we want to ask ourselves, do I have that stamp, real? Do you remember that? I don't know if they still do it. Remember the real dairy stamp that was on everything that was real dairy? It, it had that little kind of teardrop in reverse or whatever you'd call it. And, and it was stamped real. And we want to just say, okay, God, I, I want to objectively evaluate my faith. I want to know if I've got the real thing. Well, Abraham's story helps us objectify that important question. Do I have the real thing? Verse 4. So Abram left. Boy, if we're just reading through this quick, we might miss it. But that's big, right there. He got the call, and the next thing he did is he left. He obeyed. Faith and obedience are inseparable. In fact, when Paul talks about it in, in Romans, in the very beginning of the book and the end of the book, he talks about it as the obedience of faith, that faith is obeying God's commands. He took him at his word. And so it says in verse 4, he left as the Lord had told him and lot with him. Abram was 75 years old when he set out from Haran. He took his wife Sarai, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran. And they set out for the land of Canaan and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. There's another obstacle. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give you this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord 
who had appeared to him. Here's the first picture. He's obeying God's command. God says, go and leave. And he left. And he's trusting his promises. You say, wait a minute, wait, wait, I don't get it. Where does it say that he's trusting his promises? Well, by the very fact that God says, this is the land, and he worships. He builds an altar and he calls on the name of the Lord. We understand that what he's doing is saying, I acknowledge that you are God, that you are a good God worthy of all of worship, all my worship. He's trusting in the promise, even as he's obeying the command. Now, here's the deal. We live in a country that when you ask the question, do you believe in God? Everybody says, yeah, I'm in on that. I believe in God. I mean, most everybody. There's a few that have a problem with that statement, that question. Now, the deal is, though, faith in the Bible is not just intellectual assent. Because there's a lot of people who say, I believe in God. But that has no bearing whatsoever on their life. So it's just something that they assent to. But it's not anything that they would put their weight on. They'd never put their life in that God's hands that they believe in and allow him to exercise his authority in their life and direction in their life. It's a little bit like the story of Blondin. Do you know about that guy, Blondin? In the 1850s, this guy from France who goes by the name of Blondin did these amazing feats. In 1859, he was the first man to cross Niagara Falls on a tightrope. And... Um, And it was so easy for him that he decided, let's just make it a little more difficult. So the next time, he said, let's just try a backward somersault somewhere along the rope. Okay, that was easy. The next time, he said, I'll do it blindfolded. He did it blindfolded. Another time, he said, tie my hands and my feet together. And he did that. Another time, he said, you know what? I get hungry when I'm going across the falls, and I'm going to take out a little stove, and I'm going to cook omelet out there. And he cooks an omelet over Niagara Falls on a tightrope. Another time, he says, I'm going to take my manager across, and he gets him on his back, and the two of them walk across Niagara Falls. One time, he took a wheelbarrow. This was kind of an easy one for him. He wheels the wheelbarrow across, and he gets to the other side, thunderous applause. They're going, Blondin, Blondin. He says, do you think I could wheel a person across? Yeah, you're the man, Blondin. You can do it. And he says, great, get in. Now, see, there's the rub. I believe you can do it. And getting in, two different things. Real faith is getting in. And Abraham got in. He said, God, I don't know where you're taking me, but I'm going to get in. And I'm going to let you take me to the promised land. He got in. He put all of his weight on God's character and his word. He rested on that. Turn the page, chapter 15. Here we have the covenant renewed. There's been some tests of the famine, some tests of hostile enemies in chapter 14, chapter 12, the famine. He comes to chapter 15, and God brings a vision to him in verse 1, and the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, and here's what God said. Yeah, you're in hostile territory, but Abram, don't be afraid. I'll be your protector. I'm your shield, and I am your very great reward. Well, Abram says, oh, sovereign Lord, what can you give me 
since I remain childless, God, there's only one thing I want. It's one thing we've always wanted. I want an heir. You promised me an heir. You say, I'm your reward. God, give me a child. Then he goes on to say, what can you give me since I remain childless? And the one who will inherit my estate, the heir of my estate, is my servant, Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, you have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. It's not right. Then the word of the Lord came to him. This man, your servant Eliezer, will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. And then he took him outside and says, let me give you a sign. So every time you're outside at night, you see all the stars. It reminds you of my promise. I'm going to keep my promise. And here's a sign of that. The stars in the heavens. So verse 5 reads, he took him outside and said, look, at the, look up at the heavens and count the stars. If indeed you can count them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Picture two of real faith. Verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and note what happens. And he, God, credited it, his faith, to him, Abraham, as righteousness. This is a huge verse, not just in the Old Testament. It's quoted at least three times in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 4, in Galatians chapter 3, and in James chapter 2. It's a key verse that answers that key question. How can a sinful person be made right before a holy God? And we live in a day where we get caught in the construct. I I, got to work my way there, right? I got to try as hard as I can to be a good person. And God grades on a curve, doesn't he? So I just need to get to that curve-breaking level, and I'm in. And the Bible consistently from beginning to end says, no, it's not that. It's by faith. It's by faith. And what happened is, as he believed God's word, manifested by his obedience, trusting his promises, that what happened is God said, I no longer see you as a sinful man. Your faith now has brought righteousness into your life. So I see you as as standing right before me. And I declare you righteous, holy, through faith. All through faith. And Galatians says that when Abraham was given these promises, that, that he understood the good news, that the gospel was actually being preached to Abraham. And he understood that and received that. When you flip a few pages over to uh, chapter 17, we're just going to gloss the story of, of Ishmael, which is basically Abraham and Sarah saying, God, we know your word, you promised it, and we think maybe you need some help. So we're going to help you out. We, we've got this idea of a surrogate mother. And Hagar, Sarah's servant, is going to bear a child by me, Abraham. And that's the way you're going to do it. And God says, no, it's not Ishmael. Though he will be blessed as the father of all the Arab nations, Ishmael. It's not Ishmael. And we get to 17, and God confirms his covenant again. And we note that in chapter 17, verse 1, he's 99. So we're, we're talking about 20 
four years since he heard the promise. That is a long time. And some of you are going, hey, there's some things that I've been waiting for for 24 years. Take courage and be encouraged in God's faithfulness over time. He's not in a hurry. It's 99 now, and God comes to him. And we just note two things real quick. As he reiterates the covenant, this promise to him, he says, your descendants are going to bring about kings. And that's the first mention of kings, and we'll talk all about King David and the significance of God's promise going from Abraham to David. But we just note that, kings. And it's all pointing forward to the king, who at the end of the story is called the king of kings. In fact, his grandson, Abraham's grandson, Jacob, on his deathbed is blessing his son, Judah. And he says, Judah, the scepter will not depart. The kingdom and kings and the line of kings will not depart from your family, from your tribe. And the obedience of all the nations will come to him, your one descendant, to whom it is given. So we note that, this addition of kings and Maybe even more significantly, that phrase, to be your God. You see it bolded there on the screen at the end of verse 7, again at the end of verse 8. I will be your God, and I will be the God of your people. And we are in that line from Abraham. And, and that is so huge to understand that what God's doing in these covenant promises, what he's doing in, in his saving purposes is bringing us back into that relationship that was ruined by our sin. I want a relationship with you. And I don't know if you know that about God. That God is a God who talks that reminds us he's, a, he's personal. He didn't create us because he needs us because he's one God who's lonely. He's one God who has existed in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And there was nothing deficient and missing in his existence before us. He didn't say, I'm lonely up here. It's kind of boring being God. And it should be nice to have some people. He didn't need us. But he made us that we might know him. That's amazing. Well, in chapter 17... The promise comes again at 99. In 18, visitors come to say it's going to happen within the year. And Abraham and Isaac, Abraham and Sarah, they laugh. And uh, God calls Sarah on it. Are you laughing? She said, I don't laugh. He said, no, yes, you did. And just to remind you that you laughed, here's what I want you to call your son. Laughter, Isaac. So Isaac's born. He's born in chapter 21, and then the test of tests, chapter 22. Abraham wakes up one day, and God says to him, Abraham, I want you to worship me by offering your son, your only son, the son of the promise. I want you to offer him as a burnt offering to me, showing that that I'm greater than even your greatest, most prized possession." So I want you to go on a three-day journey to the mountain, Moriah. And in those mountains, I'm going to show you the hill where you're to sacrifice your son. 
And chapter 22 tells us that that next morning he got up. He saddled his donkeys. He took two servants. He cut some wood. He got his pot of fire. He took his son, kissed Sarah goodbye, and off they went. Now think about traveling three days' journey, thinking about what God's asked you to do. You, you got to think that Abraham didn't need anything. You, you got to feel like the knot in his stomach was bordering on just, just losing his lunch. Uh, it just had to be a sickening feeling. Three days to wrestle with that call, and yet we see him walking faithfully to the mountains of Moriah. At a point, he tells the servants, you stay here. And me and my son are going to go. We're going to go worship. And he says an amazing thing. He says, we're going to come back again. And that statement is this huge statement that Abraham believed that God would even raise his son from the dead. And that's exactly what the scriptures say in Hebrews 11, verse 17. That he believed that even if he killed his own son, that God would raise him up from the dead. And so there go Abraham and Isaac up the foothills to the mountain of Moriah. And Isaac says, Dad, we've got the wood. We've got the fire. Where's the animal? Where's Where's the sacrificial lamb? And Abraham's famous, full of faith words were, God will provide. Don't worry, Isaac. God will provide. Well, so they get up there and they put the stones in place and they take all the wood they brought and they lay it on the altar. And then the picture is this horrifying picture of Abraham tying Isaac's hands together, laying him out on the altar. And as he raises his knife to plunge it into his chest... The angel of the Lord says, Abraham, Abraham, don't touch your son. Don't hurt him. Now I know that you fear me. And at that moment, there was a stirring off to the side, and there was a ram whose horn got caught in the thicket of that bush. And Abraham took that ram, and he sacrificed it as a burnt offering. And you can only imagine the joy and the mystery and the amazement that went through both their minds. But I'm thinking of Isaac's as he looked at that lamb and said, it it was going to be me. Now, when you hear that story for the first time, it's really easy to go, if that's faith, if that's real faith, I don't want that. That's nuts. That is just irrational. And if, if that's the God that you worship, you can have him. Well, let me say two things about that. The relationship that Abraham had with his father tells us it actually was a rational thing because he knew God's character. He believed God's power. And so he put his life and his son's life in his hands, believing that even if he did the unthinkable, God would raise him up. 
And, and then as you think about this God who would ask his follower to do that to his beloved son, let me just say this, that Abraham named that mountain God will provide, Jehovah Jireh. And you know what? Later on in the story, one of Abraham's descendants, a king named Solomon, built a temple. And you know where that temple was built? On the mountain, Moriah. And you know who died right near that temple? God's son. God did what Abraham didn't have to do. And when you connect those dots, you go, wow. Jesus Christ is the ram that was slain on the cross. He's called the Lamb of God in the New Testament because he becomes the sacrifice for us, our sins. The sinless Son of God who died in our place. And this beautiful transaction happens through faith. Remember what we said in, in, in Genesis 15, 6? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. So his faith in God's word and his promises brought about a great exchange where God's righteousness through the promise comes to him. So in the New Testament, it's expressed in a verse like 2 Corinthians five twenty one: He who knew no sin... That's Christ. Became sin. That is, when he died on the cross, he took on all of our sin, past, present, and future of all humanity. He knew no sin. He became sin in order that we might become the righteousness of God. So put it in banking terms. We've got a huge, unpayable debt. It's trillion gazillion, whatever the number is, debt, and you and I can't pay it off. God says, here, I'll take the debt of your sins, and I'm going to transfer it here to my son. Now your debt's on Christ. That's forgiveness. But it's better than that. He says, now I'm going to take all of Christ's righteousness, and I'm going to transfer that into your account. And how does that transfer happen? It happens by real faith. So Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says this, For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this, our salvation and our faith, it is not from ourselves. It's the gift of God that no one should boast. So how do I get that faith? You get it the same way Abraham got it. You hear God's word and you believe it. The Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. So it's not something we go, I want to believe, I want to believe. It's, you know, it's not like that little train, okay? It's about hearing God's word and then saying, I believe it. I'm going to put my weight on it. I'm getting in the wheelbarrow. It's by faith. And so the question this morning is, have you done that? Have you done that? Understanding that 
the whole thing here is God saying, I want a relationship with you. And I can't have one with you because of your sin, but I've taken care of that. Do you believe me? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That's the word that you believe that gives you salvation. Have you done it? It's not works. I mean, think about it. If you were to die today and God met you at the gate of heaven, he said, why should I let you in? I'll tell you, when I've asked that question to hundreds of people, the consistent answer is usually something like, God, you know I've tried to do the best that I can, that I could. God, you know I've, I've tried to keep the Ten Commandments. All right, so God follows up that question. Great. Let me ask you a question. How good do you think you have to be to get in? You go, oh, I never thought about that. I really did think you graded on a curve, don't you? Grade on a curve? He says, no. I don't grade, grade on a curve. You've got to be holy. You've got to be perfect. I'm not perfect. You're not perfect. It's not by our good works. That is so American. That's so much how we have grown up this nation, pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps. That's not grace. Grace is a free gift. Let me tell you what grace is. Grace is driving down the highway. Now, let's make it more personal. I'm coming to Door Creek. I'm a little late. I'm going a little too fast down Cottage Grove Road. I get pulled over. Cop says, you were going 60 in a 50. said, wow. I was a little late for church. The pastor up there at Door Creek, he says, well, I'm going to have to give you a ticket. That's justice. I'm getting what I deserve. I was speeding. Next week, I'm late for church. Same place, same cop, same deal, 10 over. I go, I am so sorry. And uh, this time, I do tell him who I am. The pastor at Door Creek Church, and he says, well, I'll tell you what. I'm going to have mercy on you. I'm going to write you a warning ticket. That's mercy. I didn't get what I deserved. Now, Grace would be this. A third week in a row, I'm late for church. I'm speeding. The same cop pulls me over. And this time, he says, I tell you what, I'm not going to give you a ticket. I'm not even going to give you a warning. But speaking of tickets, I got four extra tickets to the Badger-Penn State game on November 4th. Take them. That's grace. Friends, you and I are rebels who deserve to die. And God has graciously given us the offer of eternal life that begins today qualitatively and endures forever. And it's offered to us through his son, Jesus Christ, and we need to believe it. Do you believe it? And about those obstacles, I don't know what yours are. We were praying here last night Prayer requests. I heard about a, a father who's in stage four cancer. I heard about a young woman whose two brothers have been kidnapped. Haven't seen him for four weeks. I, I don't know what kind of fears you have. I don't know what kind of famines in your land, but there are real obstacles right now to you who believe. 
And the danger is that we follow our feelings away from God. And I just commend you to hold each other up, to ask for prayer, and to keep trusting his promises. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, you who are the fulfiller of all these promises, all those promises of land and descendants and blessing, uh, we, we bless you. We bless you and recognize that you are the ram that was slain on our behalf. And we pray, Lord, even as we understand, dear God, that you gave us your only son, that we would have the right response for the first time or for the hundredth time to say, Lord, here's my life. Here's my heart.